Well, friends, thus far in our current sermon series here in the Gospels, we have met with a variety of interesting and intriguing people. We have met with men and women. We have met with powerful people and with poor people. We have met with broken people and with blind people. We have met with disciples and we have met with doubters. And we have met with each of them in order to examine what each of their encounters with Jesus ultimately tells us about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And the picture that has been developing before us now nearly two-thirds complete after today's sermon is one which is truly awe-inspiring and wonderful. Who is this man Jesus? Well, you'll remember that in the story of a broken man being healed from Mark chapter 2, we learn that the Lord Jesus Christ holds divine authority. Divine authority both to heal the body and to heal the soul. Jesus, you'll remember, says to that broken man, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, rise, pick up your mat, and go home. Jesus restores our physical body, but he also restores our souls. From the story of the demon-possessed man delivered from Mark chapter 5, we marveled at the power that Christ holds over the authority of spiritual forces, even demons themselves, over the darkness and the evil which torments fallen humanity. And we learn that trusting Jesus actually is what puts us in our right minds, that sin is insanity here on earth. And that Christ alone restores ravaged lives by the power of his matchless grace. From the encounter where a sinful woman anointed the Lord's feet with her tears. In Luke chapter 7, we were shocked that this holy man and righteous rabbi welcomes the worship of a woman of the night. Even as he teaches his host a self-satisfied religious self-justifying Pharisee, an important lesson on the nature of lavish grace and true forgiveness. Jesus welcomes the broken, the humble, not the haughty and the prideful. Then from the story of the rich young man who was humbled, we learn that the way into the kingdom of God is not in fact by our own goodness, but by Christ's and Christ alone. That salvation is utterly possible for men, but is wholly attainable by faith in God. That in the economy of God's kingdom, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And then at the very end of John's incredible gospel, and from the story of a fallen disciple being restored tenderly, we were encouraged by the fact that Jesus graciously still uses former failures as fishers of men. And that he transforms those who deny him into disciples who serve him. And that if the grace of Christ can make Peter a pillar, then he can use the rest of us too. That's just the kind of God we serve. In the story of a blind man illuminated, we saw beautifully how Jesus alone is the light of the world. And he holds forth the cure for man's pervasive spiritual blindness to the light of his own divine life. And then finally, From the encounter where a religious expert is instructed that we saw last Sunday morning together, we were schooled in what true eternal life looks like here and now. 
even as we learn that it is more important to be a loving neighbor than to narrowly define one's own neighborhood. Stunning glimpses of grace, seven in all so far. Seven amazing glimpses of Christ's amazing grace and truth that we all need to encounter, and I trust that we've all received by faith. However, I believe pretty strongly that today's encounter with Jesus is going to stand out from the rest, and for obvious reasons. You see, despite the fact that we have already seen previously Jesus have a brush with the brute forces of evil back in Mark 5 and the demon-possessed man, here this morning we are going to witness our Savior's early ministry encounter with the head of hell himself. That is the devil, that ancient serpent and the great enemy of Almighty God. Friends, today we're going to see the Son of God square off with the slander of God's people. He's going to square off in the ring of a barren Judean wilderness right after Jesus' own purposeful baptism here in Matthews chapters 3 and 4. And maybe as Tim was reading that passage, perhaps for some of you, you might have said, you know what, that just sounds familiar. Not that you've read Matthew 4 before and the story of Jesus' temptation, but the, the content of what Christ endured there was reminiscent of an older story for it is, and I'll share that with you this morning. Because here is the vital and important lesson of ultimate victory that you and I will learn from this heavyweight bout in the wilderness today. That Jesus Christ and Christ alone is a new and better Adam. That he is the true and obedient Israel of God. That he, in fact, is a new and better Moses come to mediate and redeem a people. That Jesus is the greatly beloved and well-pleasing Son of the Father, as his baptism so clearly tells us, who defeats a great enemy, that is Satan or Lucifer, by relying upon God's Word and by depending upon the power of God's Spirit. As he resists the devil's threefold temptation, all the while, you'll note, emerging from this temptation narrative victorious and ready to declare to the people of Israel, the time is ripe to repent. Jesus begins to proclaim his kingdom, having successfully defeated the devil in the wilderness. Church, the Bible tells us this comforting truth. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession to him. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive help and mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Let me just clarify something right now. Mark, Matthew chapter 4 is not primarily about your temptations. It is about Jesus facing temptation and defeating it for us. But certainly there are benefits for us. What we see here is a text about the fact that we have a sinless champion, even a greater David, who has faced a greater Goliath and has won for us. But by his victory, by faith, we also can win in our fight against temptation. 
So there is relevance and truth for us. There are points of application that I'll share with you this morning. But make no mistake about it. You are defenseless against temptation apart from Christ. We must look at Matthew 4 in the light of Jesus' unique ability to defeat the devil and temptation. In our passage, we are going to see Jesus faced and aced three great temptations. A material temptation. That's the first one. The devil says to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. I imagine after 40 days of fasting, Jesus was a little bit hungry. And this was a temptation of material matter. A physical temptation, but Jesus faced it and he aced it for you. We're also going to see this morning how Jesus faced a test of submission. You might even call this a mental test. He was tested or tempted to fast track God's provident plan. This was a test of God's provision of power for Christ. You remember the devil says here, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. And then like the devil so often does, he twists scripture to try to tempt Jesus off the pinnacle. But our Lord and Savior faced it and aced it again for us. Thirdly, Jesus faced the test of his loving allegiance to God the Father exclusively. The devil says, as the gloves come off, all these kingdoms I will give to you if you but fall down and worship me. And Jesus says, get away, Satan, for you shall not. For worship the Lord your God and him alone you shall worship. Provision, providence, and power. These are the three temptations that Jesus faces and aces for us. We'll see today that Satan tempts Jesus with an unholy trinity of enticements that you and I know all too well. Pleasure, the senses, material goods. We know what it's like to be tempted in our flesh. We also know the temptation of knowledge, the temptation of our minds, and we know the temptation of having power in our wills. But Jesus here, seeking, the devil is seeking to effectively end Jesus' ministry of mercy and redemption before it can even get off the ground, but he fails. Praise God, by the end of this crucial temptation scene, the devil will be the one who is slinking away in defeat. Not Christ, but the devil slinks away at the command of Christ. He was defeated on this field of battle. But as Luke, the writer, tells us, who also records this temptation scene, that he goes away waiting for an opportune time to rear his ugly head again. And I tend to think that's in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's interesting, and not, um, not a little bit important, to observe how each of the synoptic witnesses, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke respectively, connect carefully Jesus' wilderness temptations up by Satan directly to his baptism in, by John in the Jordan River. There's a, a very important connection here. I want to focus firstly here quickly with Mark. Mark chapter 1 verses 9 through 11. Notice how Mark's um, presentation of this passage is characteristically brief. The Bible says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. 
And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. One thing we need to note here, of course, is that Jesus's ministry, which is about to ensue, flows out of his identity as the well-beloved and pleasing son of the father. Again, notice the brevity of Mark's parallel account in verse 12. This is where we read, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. That's it. Two verses that Mark gives us of this temptation narrative. Jesus comes to John to be baptized. It occurs in the Jordan. The Spirit descends on him like a dove. The Father voices his divine approval. And then the Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness where he remains for 40 days and is tempted by Satan. Mark's narrative is exceedingly and purposefully short. But Matthew's account, Matthew's account contains a more complete picture, not only of what takes place in this scene, but I think Matthew importantly helps us understand the crucial connections and the relevance behind Jesus's baptism and temptation, particularly as he is Israel's long-awaited Messiah King. Matthew's gospel is a very Jewish gospel, of course. In fact, there are roughly 100 Old Testament allusions in Matthew's gospel alone. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 says this, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Note that phrase. I'll come back to it in a moment. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And again, the first century reader might be thinking to themselves, I've heard this story before. Because they had. Chapter 4, verse 1 of Matthew's gospel says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. What is going on here? We've read this story and this scene so many times, but really what is happening here? Don't miss this today, friends. Matthew is showing us that Jesus Christ is no mere man. He is the ultimate man. He is the new man, the new Adam. He is a new Israel. He is even a new Moses who is poised to inaugurate a new kingdom through his ministry of obedience, his ministry of mercy, and his eventual sacrifice on the cross. He is a person with power like the world has never seen. The parallels between God's Son, the nation of Israel, and God's Holy Son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, are striking and they are essential. There are at least six or so parallels that I want to quickly walk through. Have you ever noticed that Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy? That's very interesting. The genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 1 and also in Luke chapter 3 are directly reminding us of the book of Genesis, where the families of God are introduced to the world. This is a story reminding us that 
the, the, the lessons and the trajectory, the redemptive trajectory of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants is finding their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. So we are to read here. When, Jesus, when God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we are to go right back to the beginning of the Bible and see that Jesus is a new Adam come to rescue sinful men and women. Maybe you've also noticed in Matthew chapter 2 that there is that story of King Herod's uh, edict that all of the young boys under two years of age would be murdered when he learns from the wise men that Jesus has been born. Well, again, we should know our Old Testament Bibles well enough to then remember, oh, that sort of sounds like the book of Exodus. When Pharaoh wanted to eradicate uh, the, the Jewish or limit the Jewish people because they were so prosperous and Moses is rescued by, by Pharaoh's daughter. You remember that story? Well, here's the connection. Jesus going down to Egypt, actually Hosea 11 verses, verse 1 says that out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus is the fulfillment of a new Moses. He is coming in God's redemptive plan. Thirdly, in, Mark, or excuse me, in Matthew chapter 3, notice that Jesus comes to John specifically at the Jordan River to be baptized where we are told that the Spirit of God comes to rest on him. Now, in our English Bibles, we might read that phrase and we read right past it, but the phrase is a carefully crafted phrase because you'll remember that the nation of Israel themselves were delivered out of Egypt in Pharaoh's ruthless grip. And they were delivered into the wilderness through the Red Sea. And before going into the promised land, they went through the Jordan River. Mighty, a mighty deliverance of God. But in the wilderness, we are told that the Spirit of God came to rest on the tabernacle. Jesus, then, is a new tabernacle. As John 1 verse 14 says, He came from the Father, full of truth, to dwell among us. Literally, it means He came and tabernacled among us. Well, fourth, Jesus is led by the Spirit specifically into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan over a period of 40 days. The nation of Israel, you'll recall from reading your Old Testaments, was led through the wilderness for 40 years. Deuteronomy 8 verse 2 says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. God was testing the people of Israel, and they failed miserably, but not the true Israel. He would endure this 40-day test, reminding us specifically of the 40-year test of Israel, but he would pass with flying colors. The parallels do not end there. Jesus is a new Joshua. He comes calling the disciples under a new conquest. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel took possession of the land, making conquest over their enemies. Jesus is conquering life after life in the power of the gospel, calling Peter and James and John to come and follow him. It doesn't end there. He's a new Moses. In Matthew chapter 5 through 7, as he gives the new law, the, the Beatitudes, he is a new Moses announcing a new kingdom. He's a new Joshua. He's a new Moses. He's a new tabernacle. He's a new Adam. And how many times have we read these stories 
and we do not see the connections for what they are. And we do not marvel at the majesty of who Christ is. Today, friends, I want to correct that scene. You see, in in the ancient world, scholars often tell us that all the sons of the king had to be tested and prove their right to the throne by testing. And you'll notice that many of the heroes of our Old Testament were put to the test before beginning their ministries. I think of the man Abraham, who endured a great testing uh, when Isaac, when, when he was uh, called to sacrifice Isaac. I think of Joseph before he was in Pharaoh's palace. He was in Potiphar's house and he faced the test, but was, had to suffer on the other side of that. Job was tested. The point of the matter is all of us will be tested, but Jesus himself, the son of the, of the, the creator of the universe was tested. And the great point here is that Jesus passes the test. He proves himself to be truly and obediently the Son of God, thus qualified to commence a ministry of redemption and healing. Jesus is announced by a forerunner, John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. He is anointed and empowered for his mission, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, at his baptism when the Spirit comes to, uh, to dwell on him. And here he is tested and proven by combat when he encounters the devil in the wilderness. There is Old Testament wilderness typology and a deliberate contrast with Israel here, which is this, Israel failed the test in the wilderness, but Jesus, the new Israel, the true Israel, passes the test and is victorious for us. What a Savior. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to test him on account of the ministry ahead of him. And Satan meets Jesus in the wilderness in order to tempt him to try to thwart this ministry before it can even get off the ground. This morning, I just want to take the balance of our time and and really just walk with you through this passage. It's a beautiful and a gripping passage. I want to point out a few of the important details before arriving at several practical points of application, because there are some points of application for us as Christ's followers still today. Please with, uh, look with me, if you have your Bibles open, to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 specifically, and notice that verse 1 and verse 11 serve as an introduction and an epilogue to this story specifically and respectively. The Bible says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, Warren Wearsby is helpful here where he comments that just as the first Adam met Satan, so the last Adam meets the enemy. Adam met Satan in a beautiful garden, Wearsby writes, but Jesus met him in a terrible wilderness. Adam had everything he needed, but Jesus was hungry After 40 days of fasting, Adam, Wearsby writes, lost the battle and plunged humanity into sin and death. But Jesus won the battle and went on to defeat Satan in more battles to come, culminating in his final victory over sin at the cross, close quote. So helpful, Wearsby is. Even the apostle Paul, I think, picks up on this contrast and this theme in Colossians chapter 2, Verses 13 and 14, where he writes, God has made us alive together with Christ, having, notice, forgiven all our trespasses 
by canceling their record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This was a decisive and important battle. Think about all that hung in the balance when Christ was hungry in the wilderness. Think about that. As Jesus endured this test in the wilderness, think about all that could have gone wrong. Had Christ yielded to Satan's temptations, even in the slightest bit, all would have been lost, not just for Jesus, but for us. You see, not only would Jesus have been disqualified from being the spotless and unblemished lamb, bearing uh, under the scrutiny of examination, but the whole plan of God's gracious redemption through Christ would have been lost as well. We would have been lost had Christ failed this test. But notice, as the epilogue in verse 11 of Matthew 4 tells us, Jesus did not yield to Satan's threefold temptation. Praise the Lord. But rather the devil, then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Even that is a pretty fascinating verse that I noted this week in my study. Jesus passed the test in the, in the harshness of the wilderness so that we could possess the peace of God in heaven. And heaven's servants, the angels, come to minister to him at the very end of this passage. It's fascinating to me. That the Bible tells us both here in Matthew 4 and also on the night of Jesus' betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane. Another garden of testing that angels specifically came and ministered to him. Luke is the one who points out that detail. In Luke chapter 22 verse 40, we read this. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray. Pray to his disciples. He said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. Listen, as painful as those 40 days of fasting in the wilderness must have been for Jesus, imagine the pain of the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet Jesus said there in verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That is the key to overcoming temptation. God, not my will, but your will be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Just as it was in the beginning of his ministry, so is it at the very end of his ministry before he goes to the cross to die for us. Jesus endured the greater agony of temptation, unlike any of us have ever known in our lives. And yet he submitted to the will perfectly, submitted to the Father's will perfectly for you and for me. And in return... He is strengthened by God's holy angels. I don't know if you know that experience, but I'm convinced that God sends his angels to strengthen us in our temptation as well. We're just so often not dialed into that frequency, friends, because Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 tells us this of angels. The Bible says, are they not all ministering servants? sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. When you are facing temptation, when you are buffeted and beaten down, you are not alone. God is with you. He sustains you, and he sends his servants to strengthen you. 
Be encouraged, dear friends. Be encouraged that we serve such a God. Well, I said with, to you that there were three temptations. Let's go through them very quickly this morning before we come to some points of application and our conclusion. The first temptation, again, is what I'm calling this morning a material temptation, a physical temptation. Excuse me. A temptation to not trust the Father's care, to not trust the Father's provision. Matthew chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. Look at the text again. And after 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Didn't Jesus say one time, I am the bread of life? And here the bread of life has no bread. Here the bread of life himself is hungry. It would have been no sweat for the Son of God to turn those stones into bread. But he had laid aside. His, he did not lay aside his divinity. He's fully God and fully man. But he laid aside his self-preserving prerogative. And he endured this physical temptation Fiercely against Satan. Verse 4 says, But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, interestingly, note firstly the place of this temptation. We are told specifically in verse 2, it is in the wilderness. The other temptations that we'll survey in just a moment occur in other locations. This one happens in in the wilderness. And again, I'm convinced that that is intentional. That was also historical, but it's also intentional to drive us back to the account of Israel in the wilderness in the Old Testament. The test itself is, again, simply command these stones to become bread. I think there's a sense in which Satan starts with somewhat of a benign temptation. No big deal. You're the bread of life, aren't you? Turn those stones into bread. And then as the temptations pass on, they become more significant and more severe. But this first temptation relates to physical, even material needs of man. We all know these temptations. The lusts of the flesh, according to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. By the way, even the devil knows that the fastest way to a man's heart is through his stomach. <laughs> I think that's part of what's going on, perhaps. Well, the devil attacks Jesus at his weakest point. Remember, he has been fasting for 40 days. I don't take it that Satan has tempted him for 40 days. I take it he has fasted for 40 days, and now Satan assaults him. Satan encounters him. Satan does not doubt Jesus' identity. When we read here, if you are the Son of God, it is not as if Lucifer has lost his mind. He has lost his mind, but he's not lost his sense of knowing who Jesus was. He knows this is the Son of God. But he's, he's basically saying, well, since you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. He is enticing Jesus to misuse his power and divine prerogative for selfish purposes, for self-preservation purposes. Curiously, that same construction, if you are the Son of God, is something we'll see again in Matthew's Gospel. We find it specifically in Matthew chapter 27, verse 39. 
When Christ is hanging on the cross for us, this is what is said. And those who passed by him on the cross derided him, wagging their heads. And saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Isn't that such an echo of this first temptation? If you really are the son of God and you can do anything, come down off the cross. But dear friend, he didn't come down off the cross. And he didn't turn the stones into bread because he was perfectly obedient to the father. Notice Jesus's response here quickly. Jesus says, it is written. He appeals to God's promises. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Dear one, we're going to get to this in just a few minutes, but when we fight temptation, we do not fight alone and we dare not fight in our own authority. But we fight and contend with Satan under the authority of the word of God. Jesus quotes firstly from Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. There will be three temptations, there will be three responses, and each one are drawn from Deuteronomy chapter 8 or Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 8 verse 2 says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. And again, not that God needed to find out what was in Israel's heart. They needed to find out what was in their heart. That's the point of temptation. It's not as if God needs new information. It's that we need to know that we need him desperately and fully. But he says, testing you that you, what was in your heart might be known, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that a man does not live by bread alone. But, but, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Simply put, friends, do we trust God's ageless, unfailing promises when temptation comes our way? Eve, surely God doesn't mind if you take that fruit. Did God really say? Satan is always after us in a sense of trying to compromise our conviction in the steadfast promises of Almighty God. Beloved, we fight temptation, not in our own strength, but by falling upon the promises of Almighty God, by ingesting the Word of God, not ingesting Satan's tempting pleasures. The first temptation, a material, a physical temptation. Notice secondly this morning, the second temptation is a temptation of Christ's patient submission Another way of putting that is to trust the Father's perfect timing and providence. Provision and providence are my alliterative words this morning. Provision and providence. Is Jesus going to allow his ministry to unfold under the God's timing or his own timing? That's sort of what's going on here. Notice verse 5 through verse 7 of Matthew 4. Then the devil took him to the holy city, notice a new place, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, now for the second time, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on, the hands of they, on, on their hands they will bear you up, 
lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, a new place. The first test happened in the wilderness. The second test happens really on the temple mount. The first test happens in relative obscurity. Nobody's around. Nobody would know if Jesus turned that stone into bread. In this passage, I imagine the Temple Mount is filled with worshipers. There were many potential spectators there for this temptation of Christ. And Satan, if he could only get Jesus to compromise his physical needs of hunger in the wilderness, he would have him, but he doesn't. Well, failing that test, he thinks, well, maybe I can get him to stumble by appealing to his pride in public. But again, Christ passes the test. By the way, you might be thinking, well, the temple wasn't that tall. Historians tell us that Herod's temple in Jerusalem at its highest point was 120 cubits high. For us, that would be roughly 180 feet. 180 feet is, imagine, an 18-story building. 18-story building is roughly how high Jesus might have been in this particular scene. Throw yourself down off that point would have certainly, had he hit the ground, caused death or bodily harm, of course. That's the test. Throw yourself down. What is Satan really enticing Jesus to do? Well, he's seeking to induce Jesus to doubt God's providential plan. And this is what I mean. He wants Jesus to accelerate his popularity. He wants Jesus to accelerate his notoriety. Hey, didn't you come to save the world? Well, what better way to grab their attention? Throw yourself right off this temple and you'll have crowds of people clamoring for you, Lord, for, for you, Jesus, of course. He's wanting to manipulate. He's wanting Jesus to manipulate God's providential timetable. He's appealing in the language of 1 John 2.16 to the pride of life, to the pride of life. Well, it's interesting, and I, I'm sure you, you've caught this before, that the devil himself quotes Scripture. Now, he twists it, he actually edits it, but he quotes it nonetheless. Friends, the devil knows the Bible better than many of us do. He's always seeking to manipulate and twist and pervert God's word. That's what false teachers are all about. But notice what Matthew 4, verse 6 says. It's two allusions to Psalm 91. Psalm 91, verse 11 says, For he will command his angels concerning you. By the way, Jesus had ingested all of God's word but he lived as the Psalm 1 man. Jesus knew Psalm, 1 like the, Psalm 91 like the back of his hand. And so Satan is tempting him on this very point. He will command his angels concerning you, and the Bible actually says there next, to guard you in all your ways. Verse 12 says, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Again, this is one of Satan's ancient tactics and strategies to twist God's word. Didn't God say that he would protect you? Throw yourself down. He's perverting God's word. By the way, this is something I just learned this week. I always love to share those things when I learn new things with you. In one commentary that I read, and I did not know this before, but 10% of everything that Jesus says in the Gospels is actually directly from the Old Testament. 10%. I find that to be absolutely not surprising, but just astounding. He had, was so full of God's word that when he encountered temptation, he did not resort to his own devices. He shared out of the overflow of his devotion. He shared out of the overflow of his heart. 
He had ingested God's word. If you are not daily in God's word, you are asking for failure and temptation. You are asking for it. The only way we can bear up under temptation tomorrow is to ingest God's word today and to trust his son fully. Well, notice the response. Again, Jesus resists the devil's temptation by relying upon God's promises, even quoting scripture. Matthew 4 verse 7 is a quotation from Deuteronomy 6 verse 16, which says this. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. That, of course, is a reference to Exodus chapter 17, verses 2 through 7. Well, again, the point is that both for Israel and for Jesus, demanding miraculous protection as proof of God's care was absolutely wrong. The appropriate attitude was to trust and obey the Father always. So we have a test of the flesh and a test of of the mind, now comes a test of the will. The third and final temptation, a test, I call it here, of complete devotion to worshiping God exclusively, trusting the Father's kingdom plan. Matthew 4, verse 8 to 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Notice first the place before we come to Jesus' response. He took him to a very high mountain. Now, scholars are divided. Is this reminiscent of Mount Sinai and the law and Moses or not? Again, scholars are divided. I can't help but think of the wilderness wanderings and Sinai. But the gloves clearly are now off. Satan is frustrated, and Satan's strategy to appeal to Jesus' physical needs has failed. His strategy to tempt Christ to an act of impetuous pride at the pinnacle have failed, and so he takes him to a very high mountain and fills his eyes, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh. He fills his eyes with the kingdoms of the world. He is effectively here, friends, listen, he's effectively offering Christ the world without the cross. He's inviting Jesus to lay hold of glory without agony, to claim sovereignty without suffering. He's asking Jesus or, or compelling Jesus to rule the world without redeeming men. That is the temptation in the third point. He takes Jesus up to a mountain because he thinks that in doing so, Christ's heart will be filled with desires of his eyes, but it does not work. And notice Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Again, Jesus draws straight out of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, the Bible says, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods. God alone, friend, is the only appropriate object of our worship and devotion. Satan is not worthy of worship. Unlike Adam and unlike Israel and even unlike Moses, Jesus the Messiah maintained a heart perfectly devoted to the Father. That's what we see in this scene. Well, friends, having withstood Satan's temptations of provision, of providence, and now of power, he sends the devil away and is strengthened by God's servants, the angels. Verse 11, the epilogue says this, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. 
And thus we have a great enemy defeated. So what does that mean for us? How can we apply this just quickly this morning before we close? Well, J.C. Ryle, the 19th century Anglican bishop, has a great quote that I share here at the beginning. He says, true Christianity is a fight. If you don't feel each week that you have been pummeled, that it's been a hard week, that you are fighting for holiness, I think you're doing it wrong. True Christianity is a fight. There is a vast quantity of religion, Ryle states, current in the world, which is not true, genuine Christianity. He says it passes muster, it satisfies sleepy consciences, but it is not good money. He says there are thousands of men and women who go to church every Sunday, but you never see any fight about their faith of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring. They know literally nothing at all. Dear one, I hope you don't sleepwalk Sunday to Sunday. I hope that between Sunday and Sunday, you are fighting, and not fighting alone, but you're fighting with Christ. You're fighting with other brothers and sisters because it, the Christian life is a fight of faith. How can we apply this passage? Well, let me give you four quick responses for each of us. Number one, and this is number one, this passage is about Christ's victory, not firstly your victory. So we must rejoice. We must rejoice and be thankful that greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. 1 John 4, verse 4. Jesus is the true and better Adam. He is the true and better Israel and obedient Israel. He is the true and life-giving mediator who lived submissively before the Father and died sacrificially as our substitute, and we can and must trust him. As Hebrews 12 verse 1 says, looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. We can rejoice. Satan might be roaring, but we can be rejoicing in temptation. Number two, we can rely on Jesus and trust him during times of personal testing and temptation. Yes, we should rejoice, but friends, we must also rely. We must also dig in because it is a fight to the end. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2, 6, For there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Are you trusting him? Or are you trusting self-help books? And you're trusting uh, your own digital devices? And you're trusting all these other things? Are you trusting Christ? Are you relying upon him? We must rely on him. Remember that Christ is the one who took on flesh why? In order, as Hebrews 2 says, that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Verse 17 of Hebrews 2 says this, Therefore we had, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We, he knows, friend, what it's like to walk in our shoes, yet he never sinned. We have a merciful and a faith, faithful high priest that really helps us in times of trouble if we only look to him and ask. 
Number three, we can recognize the schemes of Satan and his wiles from hell. We can recognize his tactics by submitting ourselves to God's promises and the power of the Holy Spirit. Tim Keller said this. He says, in general, Satan does not control us with fang marks on the flesh, but with lies in the heart. John 8, 44 says, the devil is the father of lies. The scripture admonishes us in Ephesians 6, verse 10 and following, to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, to put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So sober you up for Monday right here. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Satan masquerades as an angel of light, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So we must fight with weapons of faith, chief among them being the sword of the word and the spirit of prayer. Fight, rely, and recognize, on, recognize the schemes of Satan and wield the weapons of faith. And fourthly and finally, this morning, we can remember, we can remember that no temptation has seized us such as common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able to stand up to, but with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape. God is faithful. Satan might be prowling, but God is always faithful to us. We can trust and rest in him. James says this, count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of many kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. John Daubert sang a song some time ago, we've already won. And indeed, friend, we have already won in Christ, but we must count it all joy in the meantime. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. We have a God, we have a Savior who has faced and defeated a great enemy. May we rest and trust and rely upon him. Let's bow in prayer. Almighty God and Father, again, what a glorious encounter we see this morning. Not because someone walks away saved, but because Satan himself walks away defeated. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for what we have seen this morning. Because we know that Christ has faced temptation and won. He has won the victory for us. We often are defeated, but Lord Christ is undefeated. Oh Lord, we thank you and we praise you for him this morning. And oh Holy Spirit, we ask that you would remind us to not rely on our own power and strength, but to rest in Christ. He is our Sabbath rest. Lord, would you provide the, the grace to keep fighting this fight of faith? Help us, Lord, to, to, to take in the word of God and be ready in those moments, both to rest in Jesus and to encounter the, uh, the enemy with scripture, and we'll give you the glory for it in Christ's name. Amen.